Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation. Welcome to the 44th episode of the Pulling Tart Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Kuhn. I really appreciate everyone tuning in. Please help grow the podcast by sharing it on social media, telling your friends about it, and by leaving a rating or comment. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at It's R.A. Kuhn. That's I-T-S-R-A-C-O-O-N. That way you won't miss out on any news about the Pulling Tart Podcast. I'd like to welcome on a special guest, Andy Crossley. Andy is a former sports management professor and Indie Ball general manager. This chat with Andy should be really interesting, considering some recent moves in baseball. Can't wait to get started with Andy right after this break. Andy, welcome on to the Pulling Tart Podcast. Many of the listeners have worked in MILB and have degrees in sports management or something similar, but I would think very few of them have ever taught it. What was it like teaching sports management classes at Endicott College and University of Massachusetts Lowell? Uh, It was a blast. My parents were both university professors, um, both both professors of English at UMass Boston. So I would say teaching was kind of, you know, a little bit in the DNA and kind of on my bucket list, but not something that I wanted to do for a career. So being an adjunct professor for a couple of years was a fun way to kind of tick it off the list. Um, But but it was also a, a, a bit of a way to redress some of the shortcomings that I felt like I saw in sport management programs in years of interviewing job seekers, you yeah. know, coming out of those programs looking for their first job in the game. You know, one of which is is um, you know, I feel like and I think this may have changed in the last decade a bit, but but I feel like um sport management programs have done a really poor job of preparing students for the reality of the need to sell. When yeah. they get there. There's a big there's a big focus on marketing and branding. Um, but there's I, I think there's there's been almost a sort of like um academic bias against selling. You know, that that maybe selling is a job that historically has been done by people without necessarily having um advanced uh, um four year degrees. Um sure. and that and that programs tended to overlook that and we would get um, job seekers whose expectations of working in the game were really fundamentally like out of alignment with what general managers were looking for. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah I, you know, I know you sold when you first broke into the game. Almost everybody sells when they first break into the game, right? Oh yeah. Um, but it, but it definitely felt like a like a glass of cold water to the face for a lot of a lot of 
recently minted sports management grads to realize that that was going to be part of the job description. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nobody really goes in. They, they all say, I want to work in sports. And I got to Beloit, Wisconsin, and they told me like, okay, here's your accounts. And I was like, oh man, like I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, um, luckily, um, a guy by the name of Bill Chaya, he took me under his wing and he can sell ice to a polar bear. Um, and he, he kind of taught me the reins and kind of, you know, just took me to some meetings and I learned hands on there. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's very important to, to teach these young kids, like what we're looking for in the industry. I fired an intern because, well, there was a lot of different reasons. Um, but, um, this person didn't have any skills like her her resume looked fantastic um and her experiences were great but the lack of skills like not being able to write a press release um not knowing grammatical errors um punctuation um not knowing how to uh update a team's social media account correctly or or even look for spelling errors in those social media um posts um lack of graphic design skills lack lack of um just communication lack of just kind of everything technological skills um organizational skills and and like now, you know, there are some other aspects in there as well, but I, she had a degree in sports management and I, when I fired her, I wrote to her head of department at her university that she got a degree from. And I, and I said in a long winded email, you should be ashamed of giving that person a degree. Ouch. You know, I, I, one of the things I said to my students was that, um, it's really hard as a, you know, 22-year-old, 23-year-old, or maybe if you're a non-traditional student, you might be a little bit older, mm -hmm. although I think you, you don't see as many non-traditional students in sport management programs as maybe another degree program. So, so, you know, typically you're talking about somebody in their early 20s. Yeah. It's really hard to differentiate yourself on a skills basis coming out of school because you really haven't done much yet. Sure. And, and so it's hard to, and it's hard to hold it against somebody to some degree that they don't have a lot of skills because you know they need somebody to teach them those things oh yeah um but but attitude and expectations are really important and so you know I, the biggest thing is always like if they've done an internship because if mm -hmm. they've done an internship it was like my view was always like you and i now speak a common language like you did this for a year it's been de-glamorized for you um you know, you've seen all the, all the cool stuff, but you've also seen all the not so cool stuff. Yep. Like, you know, to go with your, your brand here, you've pulled tart mm -hmm. and, and you want to come back. Yeah. Like, so there was something about that for you that you said, this is, this is for me. And now you want to be a part of it. And, and that's, that's a big differentiator. And the other thing that can be a differentiator is just attitude and expectation. And so I think one of the things that was always challenging was like this focus on marketing that so many sport management grads had and that word marketing. And mm -hmm. I would often, you know, as soon as that word came out of people's mouths, I would always say, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like, how do you define marketing and how, what do you think is the relationship of marketing to sales? 
And the one answer that stands out the most in my mind, not because it's the best answer, <laughs> was a, a student said to me once, well, you know, marketing to me is like all of the promotions and all of the creative ideas and like, you know, designing the between innings contests and, and picking out what the giveaways are going to be and the logos and, you know, honestly, lots of things that involve marketing. Of course. Um, and I said, okay, and what's sales? And they're like, well, the sales team are the people who go out and they like sell the ideas that I came up with, basically. And um, I understand, I understand that the thought process, because I think one of the things that would happen is, you know, we bring a person in for an interview, we take them on a tour of the ballpark, mm-hmm. and we introduce them to multiple people on the staff, and they'd look around, and they'd see a lot of people in their 20s who might have been a few years older than them, maybe a few people in their 30s, a few people in their 40s. But by and large, it would look like a cool, fun place to work with a lot of young people. And they'd be like, these, this, this would be like me and my peers. Like, this would be awesome. And I think what, I think what doesn't come through there is like, you know, you've got a front office of eight people or 10 people or 12 people, mostly young. But what you have to realize as a recent grad walking into that is that if you take all of those people, they probably have 50, 60, 70 seasons under their belt collectively. Mm -hmm. And so what are you going to come in as a newly minted sport management grad in terms of your marketing ideas? Like what are you going to come in with that we haven't tried yet um, that we aren't already doing, um, you know, and, and maybe you do have one or two remarkable ideas, really creative, great promotion ideas. Even if you have that, I can't pay you <laughs> to be on the on the staff for a year for two great ideas. Mm-hmm. I can pay you to sell, like, and 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 I'm happy to listen to your ideas. And we want everyone to feel listened to, and anyone can have the next great promotion. But if your ex- expectation is to come in and be the idea person, well, we have twelve idea people already, and a lot of them can sell. So yeah. how are you gonna? How are you going to participate in that? And I think that's, I don't blame the students. That's to me a shortcoming of the programs Mm -hmm. that they don't come out or at least 10 10 or 15 years ago, students by and large didn't come out understanding that. And, and you know, GMs would just trade stories of candidates, you you know, just like you guys, you wouldn't believe the kid I had in here the other day or like, I can't find anybody. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, you know. Yeah, nobody, nobody really just nobody pictures the selling aspect. I do think that is turning around though, because you see more people who want to be in marketing, and then but they take account executive jobs to get their foot in the door, and I think they do understand that a little bit more now. But I mean, even even when I was still working in baseball, you're absolutely right. People had no idea that they had to sell, um, or how to sell, you know? Um, but that brings me into, you know, your background. You worked in indie ball with time in different roles, including general manager. What advice do you have for those that are employed by a minor league baseball team that is going to indie ball 
or vice versa. We're seeing a lot of changes, and and I think this week is going to be the week where we get the news for all 120 minor league teams, and some of those are going to get kicked to the curb to to become indie ball or um, some sort of college wood bat league. Yeah, that's going to be something, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're on one of the if you're on Somerset or Sugarland or one of those teams that's going from indie ball to affiliated ball, mm-hmm. the only thing I have to say to you is congratulations. <laughs> you know, yeah. and those I you know those are very sophisticated operations already. Or St. Paul, I mean St. Paul is mm-hmm. the gold standard. You know, sure. Um, but I think for a lot, of, you know, indie ball is really hard financially. But I think you know, there's probably only certain positions in the organization that really feel that. Um, you know, if you work in finance or you're a general manager or an owner, like it's a big deal. Like you, know, you have these expenses now that that you used to have support on. If you sell tickets or if you work in community relations or social media or something like that, I don't think there's really much of a difference. Um, you know, lots of people go back and forth between those things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, so, like, one of the leagues to me that's really interesting is a Pioneer League, like, who are becoming a, a truly, like, they're becoming an indie ball league. Uh, yeah. Is my understanding. Um, and the Pioneer League was a rookie league. So, like, those teams might, the, the quality of baseball might be better. They might get better baseball players than they've had before. Yeah. Um, but I think that is going to be the exception to the rule. Um, like, I feel, I know you had um, a guy on your show in the past who's worked for the Trenton Thunder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really sad. With They're going from being a double A Yankees affiliate to a collegiate wooden bat league team. Yeah, that's rough. hundred from 140 games to 68 games in a big ballpark that's double a standard or at least historically has right. been double a st- I mean I, um I I've thought a lot about the Yankees realignment which was the first one to be announced and mm-hmm. it's I said this to somebody the other day it's like you know when people talk about an ap- apocalyptic event <laughs> there's the debate of like do you want to die in the blast um, or do you want to survive to be, you know, um, picked off by famine and disease and cannibals, you know? And I think you look at the Staten Island Yankees, they've died in the blast. You know, they're the only, they're the the only team to my knowledge that's just outright folded so far. Yeah. Um, And so they were the Yankees class A um, farm team in New York Penn league. Well, Trenton, who's been abandoned by the Yankees in favor of, Somerset Patriots, they're now going into this MLB draft league. They're going to be a win-bat league. They may be one of these teams that just sort of, you know, you know. I would hope for their sake that 10 or 15 years from now they're from around, but it may be that they just take two or three years of kind of muddling along in the wilderness, and then they're just like, this isn't worth it anymore. Right. Um, I, I, I just wonder, like, you know, there's an awful lot of wooden bat league baseball that's going to be now. Yeah, there was already a bunch of great leagues. Northwoods League is great league. Cape Cod League is a great league. Now you're going to have the draft league. You're going to have the Appalachian League. Um, 
you know, some of these players you're going to see in Appalachian League are only like freshmen in college. Sure. Um, you know, that's a lot of competition for good players. Um, I just, I kind of despair a little bit for the quality of what the product's going to be for some of these teams. Right. And so I, and, and if you're, you know, that might be okay if you're used to rookie league ball someplace. Like, but if you're used to double A baseball, where you're seeing the top prospects of the New York Yankees, and now you've got, you know, a 19 year old who went three and six with a 5.8 ERA at Western Connecticut university last year. Yeah. That's a big, big difference. Yeah. Um, so, so I do wonder, I think, I think going back six months, I thought maybe this winter we would see this. And I think some people were predicting because of the pandemic, you might see, you know, I think even Pat O'Connor made comments of like, we might see 20 or 30 teams fold this winter. Um, I'm not sure that's going to happen anymore, but we might see 20 or 30 teams fold in the next couple of years as the reality of the new landscape sets in and they figure out whether they can really make a go of these things or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, but part of me thinks like, especially for like, now I, I think Beloit from what I've heard internally, um, I think Beloit's going to keep their affiliation um, you know, maybe not with the Oakland Athletics, but they're going to keep a affiliation. Um, but like, part of me thinks like, well, it might be better for them if they were to be in something like a draft league or something like that, because the games in April are cold, man, and and there's snow that like there's games that get snowed or sleeted out. Um, so, and you're not making any money in April and most of May, uh, for that matter. Um, so I don't know if it would benefit some teams, um, but like Williamsport was already short season. So they already had the best part of the baseball season. So now people kind of associated Williamsport, my hometown as like home of the future Phillies, but now they're going to be okay, well, these guys are going to probably be a little bit better talent-wise, but they're, and you'll see them make it to the majors, but all over Major League Baseball, not just the Phillies for the most part. Right. Yeah, and it's like, I, I think also, so we've got a team here in Massachusetts, I'm, I'm in Massachusetts, and we got the Lowell Spinners here mm-hmm. who are in, in New York Penn League. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, they're not what they used to be, but they had a stretch in the 2000s where they sold out every game for 11 years in a row. Yeah. 5,000 seats a night for 36 games for 11 years in a row. And you're a Red Sox farm club in Massachusetts during the decade when the Sox are winning those three World Series. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just the best situation you could ever have. Right. And there's still a great, you know, that, that has faded, but there's still a great operation and, you know, great fan base, beautiful ballpark. Um, and like to your point, it's not clear what's going to happen exactly to them yet. They're not in this MLB draft league. Like some of the other New York Penn league teams are, Okay, but they'll have, they'll, they'll undoubtedly have something or at least be offered something. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine there's a place where Lowell's not, 
in some part of the ecosystem yeah. of, of organized baseball. But to your point, it, even if you're getting like good prospects from big, you know, division one schools, it's really different than saying like, these guys are all in the socks system. And like, and then with Williamsport, like you say, it's, you know, you're in Pennsylvania, right? Mm-hmm. And you're a Phillies farm club. Like that's just a powerful thing. Right. Um, having said all that, I, 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 I'm still in the sort of stages of grief and yeah. <laughs> of what's happened to minor league baseball. And so I want to be realistic that as much as my gut reaction to this is like, is, is so negative it's definitely a wait and see kind of situation. Yeah, and, and, absolutely. You know, it's like two or three years from now, I I want to remain intellectually open <laughs> to the idea that we're like, wow, you know, as much as we really thought that sucked and we had all of these friends that lost jobs and communities that had baseball for decades that lost it, it's going to be tough to, it's going to be tough to come around and be like, yeah, this was a good plan. Right. But I don't want to rule out the possibility that at least in some parts of the country we'll be like, this was a pretty, this was a good plan. <laughs> or or this, yeah. this worked out, this, this worked out overall. I don't see or feel that yet, but I also right. know I'm not smart enough to, to know that I don't, no one's smart enough to know how this is going to go. And, you know, there, there could be places where this is, there's good outcomes from this. I, I'm waiting for a really smarter person than I am to illuminate what some of those could be for me. <laughs> um, but like the one, one that stood out was somebody pointing out, you know, another writer, I don't remember who it was saying like, Hey, you know, Pioneer League baseball is going to be better than Pioneer League baseball's ever been. And, and you know, yeah. at least in terms of an on-field. And I was like, all right, you know, I, I, I'm open-minded to that idea. You know? Sure. If you're in the North, if you're in the Northwest, if you're in a Northwest league city, you're probably going to see better baseball than you've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, so there, there's some things like that, but, but but then you've got places like Wichita, Kansas, who shelled out $75 million in public money to get triple a baseball. Yeah. They're never going to see one inning of triple a baseball and they got, and they got allocated down to double a now double a baseball is still a lot of fun. A lot of their fans won't, you know, a lot of their fans won't, necessarily perceive a distant a, a difference in the friday night entertainment value of like a double a game or a triple a game yeah but i guarantee you that those civic leaders who put all that money into getting the wind surge there didn't think they were getting a double a baseball team for that price tag. yeah exactly so i i agree in the fact that how to grow baseball is not to get rid of some base like to downsize baseball but the one thing that i can see from this plan that i semi agree with is having the affiliates closer to the big league club like it made no sense for who was it sacramento to be a washington nationals affiliate it made no sense for beloit to be an oakland a's affiliate um, for Las Vegas to be the top farm club of the New York Mets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so I do think some of this realignment, like, is going to make sense affiliate-wise. 
But at the same time, like, well, if you're trying to grow the game of baseball, why would you get rid of 40 minor league baseball teams? You know, in 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 small cities that kids are playing baseball and trying to make it to the majors, you know. Um, but I don't. Like I said, I'm trying to be open-minded to smarter people than me telling me what's going to be good about this. And another example is you had Quint Studer on your show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he said, look, you know, we had three millionaires on Beloit last year, you know, bonus, bonus babies. Yeah. And understandably, it's a massive investment for the parent club. They don't want those guys on a 12 hour bus ride. Um, that's really fair. (laughs) Yeah, it, it definitely is fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've told me that you went to the baseball winter meetings twice. The baseball winter meetings should be right now as we're as we're talking. Um, I think they're still doing some virtual type things, but the the in person part is supposed to be happening right now, but it's clearly not because of COVID nineteen. Uh, tell the listeners how it was different for you as you were representing an indie ball team. Yeah. So did you have, let me ask you, did you ever go, Bobby? I went as a job seeker. Um, I went to Nashville. That was a lot of fun. What year was that? That was 2012. And is, is that where you got one of your jobs? (laughs) Um, funny that you asked that. So yes and no. Um, I had a bunch of interviews for, internships which i had already done an internship in baseball um so i didn't really want to do another one and i couldn't really afford to do another one um if that makes sense but so i interviewed for the director of media relations and marketing for the beloit snappers and they had told me i mean i guess the week after that they had um offered the position to someone else and i was like oh okay well all right move on and they said they said well hold on a minute like you are our second choice and we talked to some of your um references and it sounds like you're a really hard worker and at that point I had been, my dad owns his own garbage disposal company in Pennsylvania. I had been a garbage man, you know, off and on every summer and winter break for seven years at that point. And I was an intern for the, for the cross cutters and I was an intern for sports science on ESPN. Um, but then I had some radio jobs. Um, so I, you know, I had a lot of different stuff on my resume at that point. And they they said, um, we really need somebody to come in and, and work hard. Somebody that's been in the industry before. And we want to offer you our director of food and beverage position. And I was like, um, are you guys looking at the same resume here? Because like all of my experience in the sports industry was media related. And they they said, yeah, like, we just know you'll be a hard worker. And uh, basically, come to find out, they just needed somebody to do it. Uh, That's all anybody's looking for. It's that attitude, you know, that attitude thing. Yeah. I, had, I hadn't ever worked at 
you know, a fast food restaurant or been a waiter or, or anything. Um, but there I was making sure that, uh, you know, all the people at Pullman Field in Beloit, Wisconsin were, were well fed and, and had all the beers they wanted to drink. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting experience. So yes and no, I found my first job in baseball there. Yeah, so obviously the winter meetings are a rite of passage, um, and if you're lucky, an annual tradition. I'm going to guess that most of the people who listen to your show probably know what they are, but in case they don't, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a, I think it's known to the general public historically, not so much maybe anymore, but back in the day, it's like the place where big major league free agent transactions and trades and stuff would take place in December. Yeah. But... but but it's also the annual gathering of the tribes for minor league baseball. And there's a trade show where everybody buys their bobbleheads and, um, you know, there's samples, new food products and promotional trinkets and new stadium seats. And everybody, every vendor who sells stuff to minor league baseball is there. And there's this big job there, the, the, the PBEL, Professional Baseball Employment Opportunities Fair. Mm-hmm. So I went in 2002 in Boston. I went in 2005 in Dallas, and um, and both times I went representing independent baseball teams, which was funny because it's the gathering of organized baseball. Yeah, it's, it's MILB with a capital M. It's the people who are allowed to call themselves minor league baseball. It's mm-hmm. not outlaw baseball, which is what we were. <laughs> and so the fun. So you're you're formally banned from being there as an independent team. But we're all there. And one of the reasons we're all there is all those vendors desperately want to sell to us. Mm-hmm. And they have since the early, since 1993 when the independent baseball revolution started with the Northern League and the Frontier League. And, um, and so what, what that meant was you needed to get in, but you couldn't get credentials. Okay. And so the way, you got, the way you got credentials is that the vendors would all get extra credentials as vendors. They'd get, you know, they'd buy a booth and they'd get 10 credentials. And so then they would give those credentials to their clients. Nice. And so every year I went, I went as some imaginary person that was an employee of Bobble Dreams or, you know, some company like that. Okay. Not, yeah. Not outing anybody, but... Um, so I remember in uh, 2002, I worked for an Atlantic League team called the Nashua Pride. And the only reason I got to go is because Boston was driving distance from Nashua. And we drove down every day. We drove back every night because the team couldn't afford to pay for a hotel room for us. Okay. Um, but I went down with my merchandise manager. Um, I was 25. She was 22 or 23. And we were a husband and wife. We got... <laughs> We got the credentials already had somebody's name and they were from one of our vendors. And so we just wandered around as husband and wife all day. But the really funny one was Dallas in 2005, because by that point I was a GM. I was a, I was a newly minted GM for two months and I was high, I was hiring and I needed a promotions, needed a new promotions person. Okay. And, um, and by that point I worked for a different team that was part of a group of, you know, of, the group owned a couple affiliated teams and they also had consulting contracts with a few other teams, including my team. And so they had access to a lot of credentials. So I went under the, I, I, I was recruiting to, to hire a promotions director in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is a sort of hard scrabble 
urban boxing community um, okay. in cold northeastern, you know, New, northern New England. Um, but I could only get into the the job fair and the and the meetings as a representative of a South Atlantic League team from a beautiful southeastern warm climate. <laughs> My actual job was posted as a South Atlantic League promotions director job. And that's actually a pretty good job for the fair, you know, like sure. oh, yeah. a lot of those jobs are a lot of those jobs are internships. Mm-hmm. This is a full time job where you didn't have to sell as a right. promotions director. So a ton of people put their name in the box the mailbox to interview. And I went down and people would come in and, and the first thing I would tell them would be like, so listen, <laughs> I've got good news and bad news. The good news is this is a job for a promotions director. The bad news is it's not in the South Atlantic League. It's not a farm club of the New York Yankees. It's not nice weather. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is what it is. It's independent baseball in New England. It's going to be freezing cold and it's in a, it's in a community that's kind of down on its luck. Um, but let's talk. Um, and then a couple of the interviews, you know, they didn't even let me get a word in edgewise. And they kind of went on and, you know, they sat right down at the table and shook hands and went on and on and on about how they couldn't wait to work in the beautiful sunshine. And they loved it south. And I was like, all right, well, yikes, <laughs> that's not what this is. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's funny. I was on the other end of the table from basically the conversation you just described to me which is I went down there, you know, our, our promote, we were a team that was kind of known for good creative promotions and we were coming off a sort of flat year where our promotions had just been kind of like blah. Mm-hmm. And we decided to get a new promotions person. And I went down there with this idea that we needed to have someone who had a couple years of experience under their belt. Um, because that was what it was going to take to elevate our game. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up with two finalists and one of them was a guy from the Northwoods league who'd been a general manager in the Northwoods league. Okay. League. Okay. And he knew all, you know, he had, he booked all the, he booked a bunch of the big acts. He knew the acts, he knew the, the brokers for the acts. Okay. He'd ordered many bats and bobbleheads. He'd done all the work. Um, and he had a million ideas. And then the candidate that I liked better just seemed like we just gelled and she had great ideas, but she she had an internship and she'd been like an on-field um, MC for Scranton Wilkes-Barre AAA. Oh, yeah. But she was a game day only intern. She'd never even worked in an office before. Hmm. And I'd come down here with this preconceived notion of like, I got to have somebody with two years experience. So even though my gut said this young woman is the, the right person, I offered the job to the other guy. Okay. And thank God he turned it down. <laughs> um, and then like we, so that took a couple of weeks to play out. So a couple of weeks after the um, meetings, I called up this other young woman and I was like, are you still available? You're the person that I want. You've got to come up here. And she's like, ah, I took a job in Kannapolis, North Carolina selling tickets. And she's like, and I was like, tell them that you're quitting and that you, you have a better job. And she did. Okay. And she came up and was our promotions director a couple of years. Well, beyond that, I left before she did. And then I hired her again when I worked in professional soccer. Okay. I hired her twice. She went on to work for the Baltimore Orioles. It was probably one of the best hires I ever made in my life. 
Wow. And one of the lessons I took from that is like, don't go into a hiring process with a preconceived notion of what your candidate ought to look like. Okay. Yeah. Um, Perfect. So, um, and we were emailing back and forth, but can you tell the listeners about your first game in baseball? Yeah. Um, so it was 2001, uh, May 4th, 2001. And, uh, um, I was the PR director for the Nashua pride in the Atlantic league. Uh-huh. And we were opening at home against a team called the Newark bears. And it was a really interesting team because it was owned by a former New York Yankees catcher named Rick Saron. Mm-hmm. What Rick Saron had done that spring is he had assembled essentially like a independent baseball dream team. Okay. So he had, uh, he had Jim Leyritz, the New York Yankees World Series hero of the 90s. He had yeah. Lance Johnson, who had been an all-star center fielder for the Mets. Jack Armstrong, who had been a World Series hero for the Cincinnati Reds. Jamie Navarro, who had won 15 games for Milwaukee Brewers. Um, I think Hensley Mullins was on a team who had been a Yankees third baseman. But the, the, the big story was um, he had the reigning league MVP, who was Ozzie Canseco, and then he signed Jose Canseco. Wow. Who had been released in training camp by the Angels that year and had played in the World Series for the Yankees just like six months earlier. Wow. And, and so – um, this game in, in New, Nashua, New Hampshire, in this Depression-era 4,000-seat ballpark was going to be Jose Canseco's first minor league game in 15 years. Yikes. And he was, he, he was basically saying, this is before he wrote the book Juiced, but he was already, his, his talking point was already that he was being blackballed from baseball for vague reasons. Yeah. Um, and the story that what was interesting was he had he had something like 440 career home runs, mm-hmm. and at that point, before the steroid scandal had blown up, nobody in Major League history had who had hit 500 home runs had ever been denied entry to the Hall of Fame. Okay. So the the, the question he's 36 years old, so he wasn't that old. He was a couple years away, a couple years removed from a really good season with Tampa Bay, where he'd hit like. 35 or 40 home runs. Mm-hmm. So the question was, was he going to come here and play for a few weeks and get back up to the majors and get his 500 home runs? Okay. Um, so he's opening up in our ballpark. Um, and, and also he played for the Red Sox in the mid nineties. And we were in Nashville, New Hampshire, which is a border city between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. So effectively the Boston media market. Yeah. Um, I'd never worked a game in baseball before. And we also didn't really have much expert, much depth in the front office. It was about a five-person front office, and it, most of the front office had quit over the winter. So I'd worked there three months, and I was the fourth most senior person on the staff, and the third most senior person had started the week before me. Wow. Um, so uh, on a normal day in Nashua, a normal night, we had two press credentials out. So we didn't even bother to do press credentials because it was sure. the beat writer from the local paper and it was a stringer, like a part-time writer from the big paper, the, the state's biggest paper up north. On this night, though, we had 80 credentials. We had all three satellite trucks from Boston, NBC, ABC, CBS. We had CNN, New York Times, Sports Illustrated. Um, I spent the whole day 
driving around to hardware stores, buying all the um, uh, power strips and extension cords that I could find <laughs> so that we could turn a whole section of stands into a adjunct press box because our press box only sat like eight people. Right, right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was a sellout. It was a great game. And then at the end of the night, um, we had to take all the players laundry back to the GM's apartment because the clubby from the previous year, and I'd never even heard the phrase clubby before. I didn't know anything about this fascinating job in the minor league baseball ecosystem, but the clubby the year before had not only quit as as so many clubbies do, but he had taken all of the team's laundry machines and loaded them up onto his truck and just vanished with them. Whoa. So they hadn't replaced the laundry machines. And so we ended up doing all the laundry in the coin op laundromat machines all over a GM's apartment building. And we're up until like two in the morning and this is game one of a three-game homestand. <laughs> Yikes. So we're going right back at it for another sellout the next yeah. night. Um, and uh, about two in the morning, an intern came into the in, into the, um, into the GM's apartment. And we're, those of us who are still awake are sitting around drinking beer and watching the Big Lebowski. And he's like, I've got all of the Bears uniforms, but there's one that I can't find. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was Jose Canseco? Uh, yep. He had lost. He had lost it somewhere in the belt. And you know, it's independent baseball. They only bring one set of jerseys. So. Yeah, we have a sellout tomorrow night for everybody who wants to see Jose Canseco. And and the, the dude's like six foot six. Like it's not like he's not a small dude. Yeah. Jersey's gonna fit him. <laughs> wow. Finally, somebody found it stuck to the inside of a dryer, like on the eighth floor, and uh. we were able to. He was able to play the next night, but wow. it was a blast. I mean, it was just one of those things where you're like, it's completely crazy, but you, but it also, as a young adventure seeker, you're like, it does, does not get any better than this. I want to do this for the rest of my life. You know? Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I've definitely had some some late nights like that, for sure. Um, so you also worked in soccer as a general manager for the Boston Breakers, a professional women's team. Um, I'm a big fan of soccer. Uh, I grew up playing soccer um, all my life, basically. Um, but how did your time in baseball prepare you for that opportunity? Um, so I do think there's a lot of people who feel like, uh, you know, if you're on the sales and marketing and operations into sports, like you really can move from one to another. Mm-hmm. I feel like for years there was a lot of baseball guys who like lusted after the idea of moving into hockey. Okay. Cause they're like, it's only 40 games and there's no rain. <laughs> you well, know? they have a point. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's still affordable family entertainment. So it's sort of the same, you know, it's like the same concept. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a degree to which that prepares you really well. Um, I'd played a little soccer growing up, but I'm not a soccer person. I still kind of work in soccer today, but in a in a nonprofit oh, youth, okay. development, youth development capacity. Yeah, but I but I know the game of baseball better. I'm a, from a from a sort of purist, you know, standpoint. I'm more qualified and competent in the sport of baseball. So you know, um, here's what I would say about the difference between baseball and soccer. 
Um, baseball has a better sales culture. Sure. <laughs> um, or certainly, certainly than the women's game did 10 years ago, just more sophisticated, you know, understanding of selling. Um, but um, the, the thing that was really interesting is that I do think baseball has this very like hierarchical, like top down view of, of entertainment, mm -hmm. which is sort of like what I would call it the, the Nirvana model of entertainment. It's like, um, where the, like, here we are now entertain us, which is the idea that like the people who work in the front office are these, are the experts. They're the, they're the fun directors. They're the, cons the consultants. And, and I don't know, I don't, you're of a younger generation of front office than I am. So I don't know if this was still the case, like when you were in the game in the past decade, but like you go back 10 or 15 years, there was this sort of like arms race of like kooky titles. Like you'd get people's business card and they'd be like, I'm the cruise director. Oh. I'm the, I'm the ambassador of fun, you know? <laughs> and, but, but all of these titles implied that you were this like expert who knew how to party better than, anybody else including your own fans okay and so it, it was very much and like how many times have you heard minor league baseball people talk about pt barnum or about bill Vack or mike Vack? like the like these are like the you know the front office icons the, okay the, you know the the sort of ringmasters that know how to show people a good time sure there's no corollary to that in soccer okay now, in, in soccer, it's supporters culture. And the idea is like, we make our own fun. And what we need is for you to get out of our way and for you to create the conditions that allow us to create our own fun. Interesting. So I'll okay. give you an example of that. So, And this is sort of an example of maybe the ignorance that I brought into soccer culture coming from minor league baseball. Okay. And we had a, so, so the team that I worked for was called the Boston Breakers. Um. And there have been three women's professional soccer leagues in history. Um, the first was called the WSA, played from 2001 to 2003. It had all the greatest players from all over the world, Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly and Brandi Chastain and all those icons of the 1999 Women's World Cup team. Right. Um, and Boston had this great franchise. It was super popular, but then the whole league went out of business and basically dragged down the Boston club with it. Okay. So, so there was a, second league that played from 2009 to 2011 called women's professional soccer. And when they came back, they reformed the Boston team because Boston had been really successful. Sure. And that was, that was the version that I worked for. And we, we reformed that team with some of the same front office people from the original version and a couple of the same players. Okay. Um, and, and I was basically in charge of the revenue side of that business for the first couple of years. And then later I became the GM of the team. And I went before the first year and I met with the team's booster club. And I came with a couple of, I came to listen to them, but I also came with a couple of ideas. And one of my ideas was a sort of very minor league baseball influenced idea. And I was like, I want to let you guys vote as a booster club every year on a player could be current or it could be from the old version of the team, the classic throwback version of the team that you want to have memorialized in a bobblehead. And they just stared at me blankly and they're like, huh. nah, that's stupid. They're uh, like, this is what we need. They're like, you're playing in Harvard Stadium. 
Okay. Harvard Stadium has the same six, so thirty thousand seat, you know, Coliseum basically. All right. They're like your point. They have the same security company that does the New England Revolution Major League Soccer games mm-hmm. in Gillette Stadium. Yeah. And that security company won't – a lot of these boosters were also boosters of the Revolution. Sure. Okay. They're like, that security company won't let us bring flags into the ballpark that have a flagpole that's longer than whatever. They're like, 38 inches long. And okay. they're like, but we want to have these massive flags <laughs> that we can wave all over the stadium. They're like, screw your bobbleheads. Make sure that the stadium rules let us bring in the, any size banner or flag that we want. That is what that is what almost all of the fan kind of feedback was like. It was like, get out of our way. We are the architects of our own culture and fun. We don't need you to be the cruise director. We can do it, but don't put up these bureaucratic rules that, you know, like the most important thing to them was that tailgating be allowed. Okay. Um, Which, you know, in minor league baseball is, is um, controversial. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Because you're defending your per caps at all costs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's like, yeah, Tailgating is great if we can control the food and beverage, but if you're saying you want to bring in your own, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. But in soccer, they're like, if you're not going to let us come in and cook out and bring our own food, we're not going to be there. Yeah. So it's very, very different, and it definitely required like a major shift in thinking to like oh, meet those yeah. people where they were at and and get out of the idea that you that you know better than your fans do. Interesting. Wow. I th- I wouldn't have thought of that. That's uh. That's super interesting. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to take this chance to cut to a break, and we'll be right back with more Andy Crossley right after these messages. Welcome back, Andy. Again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening to hop on the Pulling Tart podcast with me. What was it like working at the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996? I imagine that had to be pretty awesome. It was awesome. Um, So I'm a Boston kid. I grew up in the city of Boston. I really wanted to see a new part of the country for college. And I, I picked... Emory University in Atlanta, partly because I knew the Olympics would be there, 96 games while I was there. And, and, and I'll tell you, my, my dad and I had this wonderful trip to check out Emory in 1990, summer of 1992, before I went into my senior year of high school. Okay. We drove, we drove from Boston to Atlanta, and every other day we went to a college, and every other day we went to a minor league baseball game. Nice. Um, and, and, and with one exception, which was an Orioles game. So this was the summer that Camden Yards opened. Oh, so we went to um, we went to a game at Camden Yards the year it opened. We saw the the uh, Norfolk or the Tidewater Tides at the time in, in Virginia. Um, went to the University of Virginia, where my dad had gone to college. Um, we went down through the Carolinas. We stopped Durham, which was my number one spot because old Durham was the, you know, the seismic moment in my life came out when I was 12 years old and I convinced my parents to take me to see it and it changed everything. 
We went to Durham um, and uh, I ended up going to, to college in, in Georgia and, and working in the Olympics. And it was a wonderful experience. Um, the funny thing about it was I, I was working in a video store um, at that summer to make some, to make some scratch to pay rent to mm-hmm. be in the Olympics because I was a volunteer. Okay. Um, I was working for the, I was working for the Russian Olympic team cause I was a Russian major in college. Oh, and, wow. Uh, and I'm working in this video store about four weeks, four or five weeks, maybe before the Olympics. And I'm opening up one morning by myself and the owner, the owner or the manager comes in with her daughter, who's probably, I don't know, six or seven years old. And she's picking out a bunch of, a, bu- a bunch of movies I was like, oh, you know, I wasn't expecting to see you this morning. <laughs> and she's like, well, you know, my daughter's got chicken pox. And I, I wanted her to, you know, pick out a bunch of movies because we're going to be home for the week. Uh, and I was like, she has chicken pox. <laughs> I was like, I've never had chicken pox. Uh, um, and I was, I was 21. And, um, and she's like, oh, my gosh. She's like, I just assumed everyone had had chicken pox, you know, by the uh, – I was like, well, not this guy. You know, I'm an only child. Like, I was, you know, kind of in a bubble. <laughs> wow. And so sure enough, like a couple of days later, the first pox appeared. And when you get chicken pox as an adult, it knocks you on your ass. Um, I, I got up and there, there was a day I, I, after it really hit me a few days later – I got up to go to the bath. I was just lying on my couch all day long. Couldn't leave the house. I got up to go to the bathroom and I, I just collapsed and it fell headfirst into my bathtub. Oh, um, goodness. And meanwhile, I'm calling my, my boss and I'm like, hey, I was like, I, gotta, I, have, I have to tell you something. I was like, I have the chicken pox. I don't know how long this is contagious. <laughs> but, but I'm picking – and, and you, to do the job that I did in the Olympics, you have to do a year of training. So I, at this point, I had really? done like 11 months of volunteer training to be in this job. And now I'm like, I'm picturing, I'm like, am I going to infect the whole Russian Olympic team? Wow. <laughs> where they, don't, they don't win any medals and I'm going to be on the front page of papers all over the globe as like patient zero. Right. Um, wow. And, and so uh, to be to be honest, like, they basically, like with a doctor's note, let me do this job, which involved being in close proximity to like 600 Russian athletes like every day. Yeah. Like one note from like a campus clinic saying I wasn't contagious, which in hindsight is outrageous. Like they should have been like, sorry, pal. <laughs> like uh, hard, hard luck. Um, thing, but, thing, but things I, that happened over 20 years ago, like things that would never happen yeah. today. <laughs> Yeah, the cool thing was, so that was like July and August of 96. And then like a few weeks after the Olympics, I was going to Moscow to do a, um, a semester abroad for the first half of my senior year. And um, at the time, Russia was um, in a horrible economic, you know, contortion, like, like spasm mm-hmm. of, of trying to be a non, you know, transitioning from communism to capitalism. Okay. And, um, and, and, and one of the things about that was unique about the Russian team was like, no, nobody came from Russia to watch these athletes. Mm. No family members. Okay. It was, and as soon as athletes were done, they were sent home. There was no money to keep them in America to enjoy the Olympic experience. I remember okay. like the cyclists, their event 
was on like day two. So these guys like flew in on a Friday, cycled in the Olympics, and they were home by Monday. Like they didn't have that experience of living in the Olympic Village. Oh, interesting. But but one family showed up. Um, this one family showed up to watch their daughter do the rhythmic gymnastics, which most people know as the gymnastics that Will Ferrell does in old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the <laughs> yeah. Um, and they showed up, and the te- the Russian the Russians had lost their tickets. Um, and somehow this family got a hold of me, and they're like, "We're here to see our daughter, and we have no tickets." And so I got I got them tickets. And they were living with like a host family that had been arranged through a church. And I, I got to know the family and, and the daughter sort of in, unexpectedly made it to the medal round. And they invited me on the last day of the Olympics, literally the final day, to go Athens, Georgia, where the University of Georgia is, to watch the rhythmic gymnastics finals with them. Okay. And and this, this girl was actually not expected to be a good Olympian until 2000. This was like her practice Olympics. Yeah, and sure. out of nowhere, she won, she, she won the silver medal. Mm. <laughs> and so they took me down on the floor afterwards, and they put the silver medal around my neck. And, and they lived in Moscow. So when I went there a few weeks later for my, um, for, for my semester abroad, they invited me over. And I got oh. to have dinner with them in their home. And, you know, they lived in a this apartment block that in the United States would have been condemned. Yeah. Um, and you walk into it and you're like, you know, you take an elevator up and it's in pitch darkness because the lights are burned out in the elevator. And, yes. and, um, and, and then you walk in the apartment, the apartment itself is beautiful. Um, but you know, you walk out, you walk into this building and it's surrounded by stray dogs and garbage. And, and, um, and uh, it was just a remarkable experience. You know, like, there's a silver medalist living here, and you'd never in a million years believe that that was wow. the case. It was really cool. That's so crazy. Have you used your Russian degree since then? Only to tell my wife what henchmen are saying in James Bond movies. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. So we've we've talked about um, sales in in sports management and and uh, working in sports. So to you, what's the number one secret to sales? Relationships. Um, I, I um, so let me ask you a question. What was your experience with cold calling? What 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 were the expectations put upon you, if any, to make cold calls? And then what was your sort of experience of that being successful for you? Uh, so I would say in Delmarva, it was kind of like get whatever you can get because my position wasn't designed to sell, but I, I kind of begged them to sell. Um I kind of I kind of needed the money, um, and I and I knew I could succeed. Um, in Beloit, I was expected to make uh, I don't know probably twenty twenty five calls a day, um, mm-hmm. and supposed to go on two three meetings a week, if not more. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the expectation. Um, we had we had lofty sales goals. I remember that much, and we and we met them every year and exceeded them, um, which kind of baffled me because I was you know 
at the beginning of sales season, you're like, oh my gosh, we're never going to hit that number. Um, you know, even if everybody renews and upsells and we get a couple new accounts, you know, um, but yeah, it's, I tend to agree with you that it's all about relationships, even in my position now in insurance sales. Yeah. Like my experience as a manager is that that number of two to three appointments a week is a lot more important than that number of X amount of calls a week. Yeah. Um, but the focus is so often on the calls. So the two, the two baseball jobs I had, I started out doing ticket sales and then kind of moved up. But in both places, the expectation was around 40 calls a day. Um, and I almost never, ever in my life did that. And no one yeah. ever acknowledged it. Right. You know, it was just like, and I also felt like there's, there's a mythologies that are made by managers in baseball that are, if you think, stop and think about them, at least in my experience, like transparently untrue. I remember, you know, my first, my first year in baseball, my first day on the job, I got there and my desk just had a yellow pages on it. And it was like, all right, get after it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was a little bit of rudimentary training that it was me and this other girl started the same day. She sat there and listlessly flipped through the pages for like a couple hours and then walked into the assistant general manager's office and said a few words to him and walked out the door and never returned. Wow. Yeah. I don't even, she lasted six hours. Um, and like, there weren't even territories. It was just like, you know, it was chaos. It was like, there was a day when three of us called the same company um, oh, on the same gosh. day. Um, it was just, it was madness. Um, but, but we were struggling. The team didn't, didn't sell tickets particularly well when Jose Canseco was not playing there. Sure. And, um, I remember one day that the GM and the AGM or the, the AGM actually called us in to have a meeting because the sales weren't looking good. Mm-hmm. And, I, and this guy's still, you know, this guy's a close friend of mine to this day. Like, yeah. I, I don't blame him, but he basically told this story. And he's like, Hey, let me tell you something. Like there's this, there was this intern for one of our owners, other clubs in Norwich, Connecticut. Norwich, Connecticut. Okay. And he's like, and he's like, he was an intern. He wasn't even on the staff. And he would come in and he would just open up his yellow pages and he would make 105 calls a day. And he wouldn't take, he never went out to lunch. He didn't talk to anybody else. He brought his own lunch every day. And it was like, um, and he's like, and at the end of the year, he'd sold $200,000 in tickets or something, whatever it was. Okay. And, and you know, and I started asking questions. Me and this and this other young woman were like, "Well, what was his name?" Oh, I don't know his name. You know, I was like, "Well, where is he now?" Well, I don't know. Okay. They were like, "Well, this guy's a legend. Like, you think he? You think he'd be director of sales for like a triple A team?" And I'm like, well, you know, you know. The, but they're like, "You're missing the point." But the point is, <laughs> and and it's like that. The longer I worked in baseball, I was like, that story was horseshit. Like that, that yeah. is not, that person was not real. Like oh, I actually, yeah. I, I, I searched for them on the internet. I was looking up people who had done internships at the Norwich Navigate. And it, it, they're just these apocryphal stories that people make up to motivate you. Yeah. But the fact, the fact is that that's not really in my, I don't believe that that's really how it's done. 
And, and I think, I think, I, I, I think the thing is people who become successful become successful for reasons that managers sometimes have a hard time dealing with. So for example, one of the ways to become successful as an account executive in my minor league baseball is simply to wait. Mm. It's, it's simply to stay at a team for two or three years until a few other people quit and to yes. inherit their accounts and to, and to then do a great job managing those relationships. And then the upsell. Yeah. Upsell, get referrals. Yep. But, but as a sales manager, you can't train someone that way. You can't be like, all right, do good enough to hang in for a year or two. You're going to start inheriting some accounts. You're going to meet some more people around town they're like no what they're like i need to tell you something to do this week and in the absence of anything else to do i'm going to tell you you have to make a shitload of worthless cold calls yeah and so that's what ends up happening almost through like inertia more than anything else um i remember a year that i was in brockton and i bet the president of the team that i could make 200 cold calls in one day um and if i'd made 200 cold calls in one day the president had to buy lunch for my entire sales team (laughs) Um, and I probably never made more than 25 calls in a day in my whole life. And so I just, I took the yellow pages and I just alphabetically made 200 calls in a row without trying to make any effort to determine what type of business it was or anything. Yeah. They were mostly voicemails, but part of it was just sort of the dare quality of it. And Mm -hmm. part of it was, I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong about this. Like maybe, maybe it is a numbers game. Like everybody keeps telling me. And I saw, and I was like, maybe if I make 200 calls, I'm going to make eight sales today and have the best day of my life. Well, I made 200 calls and I didn't make, you know, I I never got one. I didn't get one call back, let alone make one sale. Wow. Um, So, you know, you can say, well, that's just the way that day was, but that that's not the way that sales happen. Yeah. Um, but that's the way that we're often trained that they happen. It's just a numbers game. Um, yeah. Do you have to make calls? Yes. You have to be comfortable making cold calls. Yes. Yeah. Um, but this idea that it's just a, a pure numbers game is not true. Yeah. I have a buddy um, who he's one of my groomsmen actually. And I, I laughed at him so bad. We had this sales trainer and he he said something like you got to you got to get people um you know you got to say something enticing to get them to call you back. And he would leave voicemails saying saying Hey, this is so and so from the Shorebirds. I got something special down here at the ballpark for you. Um if you give me a call back at this number um, you know, that would be great. And I was just like, have you ever had somebody call you and ask you what that something special for them is? And he's like, no, but I get more callbacks than, than most people. And I was like, all right, fair enough. I don't know. The best ones were like, if you make enough cold calls, you're eventually going to find people who, who want to meet with you because they're lonely. <laughs> well, that's um, true. So I, one of my favorites of all time was when I was in Brockton, Massachusetts, and um, one of the group categories I had a lot of success with was associations of realtors, like okay. counties, because, you know, I had a couple of clients that that did like a 300-person picnic, you know, so like 320-person picnic tickets. So you, you, know, you have five or $6,000 sale on a two or $300 commission. It was great. Yeah. 
So, you know, I'm flipping through the yellow pages back in the day or whatever, and I, I find that there is a association of realtors in the next town over that's never done anything. So I called okay. them, I cold called them, and I got a sort of, you know, older sounding woman on the phone. And she's like, oh, you know, that sounds interesting here, you know. And, you, and, I, and I was like, you, you want to send something over to me? I was like, how about I come see you? And she's like, oh, that'd be great. And I said, well, when, when would be a good time? She's like, anytime you want. I was like, can come this afternoon. Yeah. So I drove out there and it was a strip mall and they had an office on the second floor of the strip mall. Um, and, I, and I walked up to the second floor and I, and I knocked on the door and there was no response. And I, and I turned the knob and it opened. And there was a woman in there who was even older than she'd sound on her own phone. <laughs> I'm all alone in the office behind a sort of like a, there was like a counter right as you walked in, it ran across the entire office. Okay. And then behind that, there was a single desk and this woman sitting there and she had an oxygen tank next to her, which sort of reinforced that she was older and more infirm than I had even thought. Right. And I knew her name. I don't remember what it was, but we'll say it was, um, you know, Beatrice. And I, I it, clearly this was Beatrice. It was the only person working in this building. And I, I opened the door and I was like, hello, Beatrice. And, and she had her head down and she was signing some sort of certificate and she had a whole stack of them on her desk and she's just sign one, turn it over, sign the next one. <laughs> and, I, and she didn't, she didn't acknowledge me. And I said, hello, Beatrice, Beatrice, it, it, it's Andy from the Brockton rocks and, and, and nothing. And I'm like, I'm coming to realize she's got a hearing aid and it's either turned down or, or so, something and right. she's not looking up and she has no idea that I'm there. And I'm starting to worry that she's going to look up and I'm going to startle her into a stroke or heart attack. Right. And so so after trying to get her attention four or five times, I, I, I stepped back outside the door. I closed it. Then I knocked really loudly. There was no response. I opened the door. I walked in again. I slammed the door behind me. I said, hello, Beatrice. And nothing. Wow. I spent 10 minutes... I couldn't have been more than, Bobby, I couldn't have been more than six or seven feet away from her. I couldn't get her to look up. Uh. I, I went in and out of the door three times. I finally, <laughs> I finally closed the door, turned around, walked down the stairs, got in my heart, my car, never had a phone. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. That's, that's terrible. That, that is funny though. Wow. So this is the Pulling Tarp Podcast. Do you have any funny or crazy tarp stories? I will give you a variation of a tarp story in a moment, but let me first ask you, what do you think are the... So so you've got a, you got a rookie, you got a newbie on your tarp crew. Mm-hmm. What do they need to know before they pull the tarp so that they don't look in the stick? Oh, um... They need to know not to take breaks unless somebody tells them to. Um, they need to know, especially if they're like in the middle area, um, they need to be aware of the pitcher's mound. Yeah. Um, and what else do they need to know? That's a good one. Um, they need. They just need to know... If they fall, to get back up very quickly. <laughs> Those are all excellent pieces of advice. The one I would ask, the one I would add is, you need to unclip all your shit. Yeah. So 
<laughs> I remember, I do remember pulling a tarp once with our box office manager and he had his phone clipped to his belt. He had his walkie clipped to the, his cargo pants and his pockets were full of change. Ugh. And as we're running across the infield, like <laughs> his, his phone flies off under the tarp. His walkie flies off under the tarp. All the change flies off under his pockets, under the tarp. And then the tarp's on the field for the next three hours. And nobody can get in touch with him in the box office because all of his communication equipment is under the tarp. Oh, the my field. gosh. Um, but the variation I will give you is the first week I worked in Brockton. This is November of 2003. Um, in Brockton, in the offseason, you, you had to wear a shirt and tie every day in the offseason. Okay. Because ideally you had appointments. To sure. Sell. So I go in probably my first, I don't know, fifth or sixth day on the job. And the president of the team is like, hey, it was my son's birthday last weekend. And I took home the, um, the bounce house from the kid zone for, for um, his birthday. And, um, and now we need to get it back. And he lived like almost an hour away from where the ballpark was. Wow. And it was, it was snowing. It had snowed the day before, and it was still snowing and storming. And this, like, you folded up the bounce house. This is like a four or five person job. This guy interrupts an entire sales day to send basically, like, the whole sales team yeah. <laughs> to his house to fold up this, um, this bounce house and bring it back to the ballpark. And it's freezing cold. It's covered in snow. We get to his house. And I'm not a dog person. He's got this big-ass dog. It's the kind of dog, I don't know what they're called, but they're the ones that wear the whiskey barrels under their under their chin. Like, they save people in the Alps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a St. Bernard? St. Bernard. Okay. He's got this St. Bernard named Munson that's named after Thurman Munson, the old Yankees catcher. Yeah. And I guess he lets this dog out to do his business in the backyard. So the bounce house is covered in snow covered in dog crap and the snow and it's got water that seeped inside it and frozen solid so it's full of ice and because he hasn't told us this the day before we're all there in our like dress shoes right <laughs> shirt and your ties shirts yeah. and ties and we're slipping around and you know we're making twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars a year we don't have another pair of dress shoes this is like what we <laughs> right all there is um so we fold this damn thing up. We get it back. We're just covered in snow and dog crap. Dog crap. Yeah. And, um, and the only nice karma piece of that story is that this president of the team, a couple years later, embezzled $50,000 from the team and got caught and got indicted by the local district attorney and, and put on trial trial to go to jail for three years now karma baby wow um but that was that that was probably worse than that was like a tarp pull but worse than any tarp pull i ever did yeah sounds like it that sounds terrible wow um so you also run an extremely interesting website called funwhileitlasted.net can you tell the listeners more about it? I, I did some searching on there, and it is extremely interesting. Yeah, FunLotLastly.net is going to celebrate its 10th anniversary coming up in February. 
Um, I started it my last year in pro sports in 2011 when I was a general manager of the Boston Breakers, and I kind of knew that this was the end. And, um, and it was sort of like a love letter to these Wild West kind of fringe pro sports you know, not just minor league baseball, but sort of all of these really entrepreneurial sports, whether it's arena football or minor league baseball or hockey and women's sports and the things that sort of scratch and claw to keep a, a piece of the, you know, sports pie in this country. Yeah. Um, and, and recognizing that there's so many teams that have come and gone, but those teams are really beloved by a lot of people in their day. Um, and a lot of them, especially that were sort of pre-internet teams of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that, that didn't have a lot of history on the internet, I wanted to find a way to preserve their histories. And so, okay. you know, interviews with people that could tell the oral histories of these teams or just even sort of encyclopedic information that would say, when when did they exist and what, what happened to them? Did they move? Did they fold? Who owned them? Who played for them? Um and so over the last 10 years, it's grown to like almost 2,000 different teams that are covered on there. Wow. More than, um, more than 10,000 vintage like game programs and media guides and wire photos of these, of these teams sort of preserving their graphic design and their look and their feel. Um, and so, you know, it's been great. Like it's been picked up over the years by the New York Times and – BBC and ESPN been linked and featured on all these different sites. And so I got out of the industry um, nine years ago now, um, but this is sort of my way, but, but I've never felt more, I've never felt like there was anything I should have been doing more than the years that I worked in minor league baseball. I felt like that was what I was born to do. Yeah. It didn't work out um, for a variety of reasons some good, some not so good. And, and, and I have to admit, in this year has been a year when I've been thankful that I found something else because I, I think this would have been a hard year for me to survive as a middle-aged man with a couple of kids if I was still doing minor league baseball, to be honest with you. Right. But, um, but it's a way for me to do something else but never really let go of what I have, have loved ever since I saw Bull Durham in 1988 with my family when I was 12 years old and and I and I went to my first minor league baseball game a couple weeks later at Pawtucket Red Sox at McCoy Stadium yeah may they rest in peace you know one of these teams that's not going to survive the pandemic so um yeah it's that this site is on what lasted that night's a love letter to all those teams that have come and gone all right perfect yeah and and, and I think it's extremely interesting I mean we you know we think about you know, like the the XFL, like like that was that was a you know. Of course, it it occurred you know back in what the early nineties, um, but but also you know this last year and I guess it's, well maybe two years ago now. But it, I mean, nobody's gonna remember that. But now now they're going to because of you. Um, yeah, it's it's awesome. I I love it, and I and I'm with you. I mean, I feel like I was born to to work in, in minor league baseball and work in sports. And, and I got out for, for my reasons as well. Um, mainly because of the shitty paychecks. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty brutally honest when it comes to that. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, and and this was my opportunity to uh, to keep in touch with with everybody and to keep in the loop with with everything. So um, I'm with you on that. We both have our our escapes there um, from from the real world, I suppose. Um, but so, um, Andy, where can the listeners find you on social media? <laughs> Not many places. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, 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 I've, I've made a little bit of a conscious choice to, to really be double down on my website and not, and, and it's contrarian. It's counter to what everybody would tell you you need to do to promote a good presence. Um, the, the one sort of concession I make to social media is Twitter. So I'm at, at fun while it lasts one. I hate that handle, but some, <laughs> else got fun while it lasted before me. Uh, okay. Well. <laughs> fun while last one on Twitter. Uh, not even super active on there, but the best place to find me is funwhileitlasted.net, the website. Okay, perfect. And so you've listened to a couple episodes, and I end every episode with the same question, and there's a Spotify playlist with, with all of them. Oh, nice. Okay. What has been your favorite walk-up or warm-up song in your baseball career, and whose was it? I'm going to give you one so you can put it on the Spotify list. I think it's tough because it's so hard years later to hear a song and be like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Like, now it sounds like a cliche. Right. Um, because you're like, I'm sick of that song. But But when somebody gets the song early and first and it gets – a whole ballpark up and dancing for a summer. Yeah. We're like, oh man, this guy's the best. So there's a guy named DJ Boston who I think got his highest AAA but never made the majors and he played for us in Nashua. And this is going to be like 2002 or 2003, but he latched on to um, Crazy in Love by Beyonce before Ooh. it was like everywhere. Yeah. And that was his song for the summer. And just like, you know, and, and he was an awesome player. I can't remember if he hit cleanup or number three or whatever. But like, he'd come up and that horn sample would come in and just the whole place would be on its feet. And it okay. was just, maybe it was because that was one of my first, and I, I programmed the music that year. And maybe it was just because it was like one of my first experiences with walk-up music, mm-hmm. but Oh, it was just like electric. So I'm going to go crazy in love by Beyonce. All right. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Andy, for taking the time out of your night to come on to the Pulling Tart podcast. And uh, thank you for reaching out and introducing funwhileitlasted.net to me. That's going to be a deep dive uh, for a while to come, I'm sure, for me. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, uh Let's keep in touch, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, cool, cool, man. Like, keep it up, brother. I love what you're doing, and I feel a real kinship with your with with your podcast. And I look forward to seeing how else you get on here. Thank you, thank you. I really appreciate that. I look at the sky.
You've listened to the Pulling Tarp Podcast, distributed by Stoveleg Media. Make sure you check out our page at stoveleg.com to learn more about Bobby and the rest of the show. Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation.